Hi, this is Mel Fulton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Literati Glitterati. Championing stylish wordsmiths and sterling conversation, it's a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday till 1pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. It's Literati Glitterati time. G'day, my name's Mel, I'm your host. Um, We're going to talk heaps about books and words and stories and reading in general and we're going to give you some cool recs for some things that you might like to to pick up and put on your reading list. Um, It's going to be a blast. I would like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and, of course, to Bunjil, the great creation spirit. The Colonial Project is an ongoing one and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today on the show, we take a look at the Mean Girls of WA with, with author Laura Elizabeth Woollett. It's going to be fantastic. Plus, from 12.30 or so, Quentin Bryce award-winning author Angela O'Keefe will be dialing in to talk to us about her new book, The Sitter, which is a, a gorgeous little book, ostensibly about Hortense Cezanne, wife of the famous painter, but in actuality about so much more. Triple R. It's time to introduce our first guest on the show today. Laura Elizabeth Woollett is the author of a short story collection, The Love of a Bad, Na- the Love of a Bad Man, the novels Beautiful Revolutionary and The Newcomer, and now the short story collection West Girls, which is a fierce interrogation of sex, money, power, and on Australia's glittering West Coast. Welcome to the show, Laura. It is a delight to have you here. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, Laura... You grew up on Perth. Uh, you grew up in Perth. Can you tell us a little bit about why it inspired this this collection for you? Yeah, so I left Perth when I was eighteen. I spent the first eighteen years of my life there, and um, I honestly like never really felt like writing about my hometown, and even had a bit of um cultural cringe about it for most of my writing career. And um, you know, my first three books are not definitely not set in WA. Um, but when the pandemic happened and I was actually separated from my family over there for two years and had two years away from my hometown, basically, it began to look different to me and began to look a lot um, stranger and more captivating and stuff. And so uh, I began writing about Perth before I could actually go back and visit. Yeah, wow. Um and my understanding is that the book initially was going to be called West Girl and it was going to be sort of a, a singular narrative about, is it about you or about your experience and then it kind of broadened? Uh, well, way back in 2017, I did an Asia Link arts residency in Jakarta. Um, and for that residency, I pitched a project called West Girls, which was, yeah, a collection of personal essays about growing up in WA in a Anglo-Maltese-Indonesian blended family and I wasn't necessarily that serious about the project I think I was at a stage where I was just like I gotta apply for more things I gotta put myself out there a bit more um so I was very surprised to actually get that opportunity and um once I actually arrived in Jakarta and um had that time I actually began writing short stories instead because I just didn't really feel like writing about myself directly. Yeah, cool. Okay, so it was one of those projects that was like, um, 
conceived in the interim and you were like, I think I'm going to do this, but I'm not really sure. I just need the opportunity to get there and breathe and think. And then from there, it kind of took on a life of its own. Yeah, totally. Yeah, cool. Um, I mean, this book is such a, it's such a juicy delight to read, you know, like you, you take a look at <laughs> bitchy girls, at vain girls, at poor girls, at wealthy ones, at bogan girls, at wags and heiresses and deros and models. And throughout this book, and I think something that you do so well in, in all of your books is you interrogate this idea of who a good girl is, who deserves to be protected, like who feminism serves, should it serve everyone, what if you're a pain in the ass? <laughs> and I just wanted to ask you, you know, like tell us why is that Why is that a ripe and juicy place for you to be, you know? Mm. Yeah, I've always enjoyed writing about women who I guess could be defined as not very good feminists. <laughs> um, you know, those women who don't necessarily behave in ways which are like not only in line with like how women are supposed to behave but also in ways that necessarily like protect or help other women women who are kind of out for their own interests and their own power sometimes I think that can be really compelling um with West Girls as well one thing I really wanted to explore was um how you know I have this character um CV, who's a West Coast Eagles wife, but she's also attracted to women, and how um, the fact of like being attracted to other women doesn't necessarily, you know, make her not misogynistic. Um, so the ways that women uphold the patriarchy, especially um, white women, you know, white women who have a lot to gain from being proximate to that power, um, that is something that I think is very worthy of exploit exploration and um it's something that I I think I have explored before but people haven't really latched onto that much in the discourse around my previous books um I think the fact that I have I, my first book was the love of a bad man mm. people really focused on the bad men as long as I kept writing them so with this book I really wanted to put the men into the sidelines a lot more Oh, because the women are just so incredibly interesting. You know, like, to go back to that character of CB, she, like, brutally and devastatingly describes a friend of hers as being murder-suicided by her partner, just in casual kind of conversation. It's, um, it's, it's so confronting, such a jolt in the way that you read it. Um, another character that I'd really like to talk about is a central character in this collection because the stories are interconnected and the character of Luna Lewis who becomes Luna Lou when she pursues a, in, an international mod modelling career. She passes for a person of colour. She herself is white though but she sort of goes out into the, in, into the world as an exotic beauty um, and in the way of kind of trying to, I don't know, to save herself and to mark out her own ground and her own territory, there's this sort of savagery around her. Can you tell us about Luna Lou, who she is mm -hmm. to you? Yeah, Luna Lewis, um, she, I guess I conceived of this character um, by having the first 15 years of her, so of her life be quite similar to mine. Uh, so we first meet her when she's 11 and backpacking through Europe with her mum, which is something I also did when I was 11. And I think um, that experience gives her a taste for the world beyond Perth and makes her very eager to get out and to, you know, have an exciting life. And um, 
when she's in her teens, she becomes very, very beautiful. Mm. Uh, she also um, becomes friends with another girl, CB, who is a teen model and helps her get into the world of um, this modelling agency in Perth. And, um, yeah, through that, like, you know, she tells this lie about her identity. Um, and like me, she grows up with an Indonesian stepmother um, and she goes to a school which is quite ethnically diverse. So I think she feels that the fact that she has um, friends and family who aren't white kind of makes her more entitled in some ways to appropriate from those worlds and um, the fact that she herself looks ethnically ambiguous and, um, you know, those moments where, like, guys shout at her from cars being like, go back where you came from sort of thing. So she has these experiences which are like, okay, I'm white, but also people don't perceive me that way, so it's okay to assume this identity. Um, yeah, she's a character I see as very ambitious and very um, adventurous in her way, I think. Yeah, absolutely. She's such an interesting character and it's it's wonderful to sort of experience her her origin story and her sort of upward trajectory, but also her time when she returns to Perth and she's a former model and she's kind of, you know, when she's a young mother and she reignites this peculiar, competitive, erotically charged relationship with CB and they kind of try to... There's this constant tension between them and this constant need that you explore so well to figure out who we are in relation to other people and and competitively so mm. can you tell us a little bit about that kind of that sense of competition that you you mm. know that you do so well yeah I think they're, they're both women who've made careers out of being beautiful but um Luna has had this international modeling career which is on the surface a lot more glamorous and um a lot more prestigious but also hasn't left her with wealth or anything like that um and CB, by contrast, is the girl who stayed in Perth, who is, you know, beautiful in that more conventional, blonde, light-eyed, you know, tan-skinned, very Aussie girl sort of way. And um, Like a Ralph model. Yeah. I think she is a Ralph model. She is a Ralph yeah. model, yeah. And um, marries a footballer and has this kind of security through that marriage. Um, but I think there's a sense of... Um, definitely like CB resenting Luna for leaving and having that exciting exciting life and um CB being the one who kind of introduced Luna to that world and got her into it so there is this competitive element and there's also um this attraction which she's not fully comfortable with and uh leads her to be more bitchy and resentful and stuff um because she isn't really comfortable with her own sexuality yeah, absolutely. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Laura, you touched on before, you know, you grew up in WA, in Perth. You spent the first 18 years of your life there. Your life and Luna, the main character's lives, kind of um, were quite similar up until a certain jumping off point. Can I ask you about this jumping off point and that process in writing where things things move away from, from what you've lived and into the imaginary and how, mm. how you do that? Yeah, so um, like Luna, like 
I was interested in being a model when I was a teenager and um, was in a model search but didn't go any further than that. And um, I guess this question of um, what if, like what if I did have what it takes, what if I did find a way into that world, was always something really intriguing to me and something that I wanted to explore. And I think the beauty of fiction is that you're not limited by your own life. You know, you can go down these pathways of like, what if I reacted differently in that situation? What if I said the thing that I wanted to say rather than, you know, the thing that I said in the moment because I was anxious or too polite or whatever? Um, so having characters do the things that you can't do is always really exciting. And um, just having them be able to move through the world in ways that you don't. I think um, escapism and exploring like locations that I haven't necessarily been in um, and life experiences that I haven't had, like that's what attracts me to fiction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for people who are listening, Laura wrote a really great piece that was published in The Age uh, a week ago or two weeks ago, which was a personal essay about um, sort of the experiences that you did share with Luna's character, I suppose, which inspired the story and about your um, about your blended family and your mother and your father and your stepmother and your relationship to your kind of cultural heritage. I imagine that, like, you know, moving into writing a novel is is that act of exploring what if. And it's also like a radical act of empathy in a way and connecting with yourself in a way that you wouldn't have imagined. How am I am I right to say that? Like how did how did writing the book kind of help you to connect with things about yourself that you maybe didn't, you know? Yeah, um I mean, I think with the book like one one thing about it was even characters who aren't Luna, like there is something about them maybe that I share, like a common experience for most of those characters. And um, the character who I think was most difficult for me to empathise with was um, Ricky De Jong, who's a mining heiress and just this very privileged girl who you know goes to goes to a private school and goes to uni and then believes herself to be in love with um, an Aboriginal classmate. But it is also quite fetishising of him and stuff. Um, so this girl was actually really hard for me to identify with and the most difficult story to write. But I guess, I, yeah, fiction does force you to, if you want to do it well and you don't want to just um, make fun of your characters but actually want to portray their subjectivity, you actually need to go deeper. And I, I think, um, yeah, making making myself identify with characters who aren't necessarily, um, you know, like me or characters who... I wouldn't want to be friends with in real life. It, it's fun, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine it would be confronting and fun. That character is completely diabolical and riveting on the page, you know, her incredible flights of fantasy and um, her belief in, in, what she's, in what she's doing and what she's entitled to and in these sort of thoughts that she's having is, is quite incredible. Um, Laura... I know that with um, in previous books, you know, when you wrote um, Beautiful Revolutionary, for example, which is a really, really interesting book about the, the Jim Jones massacre um, told from the perspective of his wife, um, you are someone who, who likes to go deep with your characters and the characters that you write and 
almost presume like a gonzo kind of style when you write Mm. like them you live like them and adopt their habits so that you can completely inhabit their character Mm. how did that kind of process of writing play out in West Girls? Yeah it definitely it wasn't as much of a process with this book as it has been with um the newcomer and beautiful revolutionary because I did have that foundation where I was taking things from my own life but um going back to Perth in 2022 was very important to my process and I think um revisiting locations that I knew but seeing them with you know this real focus that only comes when you're suddenly inspired I think that there's a different way of seeing when you're writing something like where everything about that world suddenly becomes interesting and you're just collecting as much as you can um another thing I did was I did visit uh Kalgoorlie um and that kind of helped with my story which was set in the mining town um story called Wild West and um reached out to a high school classmate who was living in a town um a couple of hours out of Kalgoorlie and asked her about her life there and stuff so I do do research and um also a lot of the things I was reading as well informed what I was doing but yeah it was definitely a lot less um method writing I like to call it which is um what I have done with previous books yeah okay cool so that act of like um it was more research based like interview based reaching out to people and collecting incredible specifics of things something that I really delighted in when I was reading the book um was the you know the the nuance of that you knew all of the procedures that the wives and girlfriends were getting and you knew the brands of the strollers that they were you know and and the the different like the specifics of the food that they were eating and the way they would pre- prepare it, as well as the kind of, you know, high school aspiring model Diet Coke and, you know, sushi from the mall lifestyle. It was... Um, you could tell you went deep. It felt, you know, it felt and rang true. And as someone who had, a, you know, I dare say a kind of similar public school Coffs Harbour coastal upbringing... Um, it really rang true for me. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the books that you were reading at the time you wrote it or where you mm. think this one sits alongside, like on a shelf? Yeah, I, I don't really know what it resembles in terms of other fiction, but there were a few things that really helped me write it. Um, one was a book called The Most Beautiful Job in the World by Giulia Mentissieri, an Italian academic, and um, that was all about the fashion world and she kind of did this research around 20, 2010, 2011, 2012. So it lined up with the, the years that Luna is in the international modelling world like quite well. And, um, yeah, she just really goes into the exploitativeness but also the self-exploitation that happens when people are working in these industries that are associated with glamour and um, associated with having this sort of um, ability to escape real life and enter a sort of dream world. And I think so much of that applied to publishing and um, writing as well. So a lot of um, that book kind of helped me interrogate also my feelings about publishing and um, indirectly through the fashion world. So that that was quite fun. Um, I also read a book called The Chicago Method by Vincent Bevins and um that is all about the uh political situation in Indonesia um 
leading up to the 1965 communist purge. And um, that's obviously not something I deal with directly in the book, but when I was writing about Luna's stepmother and her friendship group, I wanted to, um, you know, have this this subtext of who were these women in Indonesia, what, where did they grow up, like how did they grow up, and um, also exploring that element of, um, you know, these women have these totally different upbringings, but they're forced together because they're Indonesian women in Perth and part of that community and um, they wouldn't necessarily be friends back in Indonesia but you know there is that that um, being forced together sort of thing so having that I guess um, political and historical context for things I was writing about even indirectly is always really important to me. Yeah absolutely I mean I think it kind of um, all of that richness hums along underneath. There's this fierce interrogation in the book of the surfaces of things and this kind of, you know, that the characters can be kind of quite... Well, they're teenagers a lot of the time and they want to be models, so it's, you know, it, it they live in surfaces and they're kind of cavalier and self-centred and, and droll. But humming underneath all of that... Um, you sense the weight and the violence that they're inflicting on each other by being so dismissive, you know. And mm-hmm. so it's interesting that, that these are the texts that you were reading um, and that that is what is sitting just right there, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, and also in terms of um, my research into cosmetic nursing and that whole industry, I listened to a podcast called Inside Aesthetics, which really gave me um, a bit of a grasp of, like, the science and also, like the craft that goes into that kind of work, um, work that is often associated with um, superficiality and vanity and stuff, but the people doing that work do take it seriously and I think um, getting that background was also really helpful. Yeah, and living in the yeah the, the nuance and the grey areas of all of these kinds of things, it reminds you not to, <laughs> not to jump too quickly to any particular um, conclusion, you know, because everybody is driven by their own needs and desires and traumas and history um, and they're all approaching things. I, th- I think, you know, even at their most sort of delusional and destructive, still with this kind of... <laughs> honest need and yearning for something absolutely yeah Laura I think maybe we've got time for maybe one more question before before we finish up today and I I just wanted to ask you you know um you've talked about the evolution of this book and originally pitching it as being sort of a memoir a memoir or essay collection and it turning into a punchy kind of short story interwoven collection what what do you think makes a short story collection sort of sing for you? What, yeah. Mm. Um, I guess, like, I, I like short story collections that are well curated, where they, um, it's not just a bunch of stories thrown together, where there is a sense of um, development between one story and another, even if they're not necessarily, you know, on the same timeline or set in the same universe, um, where your reading of one story kind of informs the next. Um, I enjoy that, and I think... My favourite short story collections tend to be on the shorter side, so like 10, 12 stories, you know. I think you need that ability to just zero in on a couple of stories rather than just throwing it all in there. Yeah, absolutely. Have you got some recs for us? Uh, Well, Paul Delarosa's um, An Exciting and Vivid in a Life is one I love. Also, um, 
Chloe Wilson's Hold Your Fire that came out a couple of years ago now. I just love her short fiction in general. Yeah, yeah fantastic. And I saw um, in the green room before before you came in to be interviewed, you were reading a favourite of mine, which is Lucia Berlin's um, Manual for Cleaning Women, which is also a really fantastic collection. Yeah, I'm loving that. Yeah, so cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Laura. Um, Laura Elizabeth Woolett's brand new book, West Girls, is out now. Um, pick up her other fiction as well. There's the newcomer, Beautiful Revolutionary, and her first collection is called Love of a Bad Man. Triple R. I am delighted to introduce to you all our second guest on the show, Angela O'Keefe. Angela has just written a gorgeous little book in The Sitter, which is ostensibly about Hortense Cezanne, wife of the famous painter, but in actuality, it's about a whole lot more than that. Welcome to the show, Angela. Thank you, Mel. It's great to be here. Angela, I thought maybe we might start today by having a chat about the image on the front cover um, of the book. It's it's a beautiful portrait. It's a portrait by Cezanne of his wife and muse. Can you tell us a little bit about the image and, you know, sort of where you first encountered it and how it, how it has shaped this book? Well, when I started writing the book, I actually hadn't decided on this portrait as being more or less the central portrait in the book. Uh, that sort of came through the process of writing. But I started, I got the idea uh, when I went to a, a an exhibition of Cezanne's portraits in Paris in 2017. And so there were quite a few of the Hortense portraits in, in that exhibition. And... I was reading the museum tiles as I went around the room and found out that they had had a very unhappy marriage. She looks very unhappy in most of the portraits. This this particular one on the cover, she's she's not that unhappy. She looks a little bit vacant, I think, rather than particularly unhappy. Um, but anyway, they had this unhappy time together and that sort of sparked something in me you know if if they if it had said oh they had such a happy marriage I don't think I would have been interested in writing about mm. um seemed to have such texture in it uh yeah yeah absolutely um I feel like that sort of led us into into talking about the plot of the book it's a delightful book it's quite unusual um quite a short book which opens um you know, with the with the character of the writer going to Paris in 2020 uh, to write to write the biography of Hortense, um, and you know, as we as we all know from living through this time, uh, to 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 go overseas at the very beginning of 2020 is is incredibly fraught. The the country and the whole world goes into lockdown, but. This writer character is accompanied by the spirit or the muse or, or, or some sort of embodiment of Hortense themselves. And the two women um, are sort of fascinated by each other and asks these, ask these questions of each other and are in a way witnesses to each other in this, in this kind of really interesting time. And... I mean, for me, the, the real nourishment and worth I got from this book is this idea that in order to make wonderful things, uh, we need to interrogate our, ourselves and, and, where we, and where we come from and, and, our, and our need to write about these things. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the book was shaped 
for you? Was this sort of, was this one, was it always your vision? Did it come to you in this way or has it, did it move and change as you were penning it? I had a false start, you know, I, I, I wrote practically a whole manuscript really and, and ditched it early on. Um, and then in the, I started again and I had them in a room in Paris and I knew that they were looking out at the um, burnt church, mm. Notre Dame. And so I guess it was some time late in 2019 and I, I knew they had to be in that room for some time and I didn't have a good reason and couldn't think of a good reason. Was it jet lag? No, probably not. Um, and then, of course, the pandemic came and it, it I knew you know, and I was off and running, and I think the book, um, the the voice became very sure from that moment. Yeah, fantastic. And the book, the book is about this relationship between the two women and sort of um, the questions that they ask of each other. It's also very much about the writer's character's relationship with her daughter as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Hmm. Um. Yeah, well, the daughter's the daughter's an interesting character in that uh, the writer's actually eventually has to tell the daughter a secret. Basically, mm. that's that's what that relationship is about. But the daughter's there as this caring kind of link to Australia once the pandemic begins as well. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed sort of. Uh, exploring their relationship and that there could be this secret that the daughter actually has no idea about uh, for in, in the writer's past and, and the need uh, comes, I mean, through the, the setup of the story and what happens and what Hortense and the writer actually witness together, um, it just becomes imperative that the writer tell her daughter this story it's very much a book about um the I, I suppose that you know the, the hidden lives or the secret lives of women and about the stories that we know about them the things that we assume and the things that we just don't know about because they're not documented or we don't ask or we feel shame or we hide them out of a need to protect people and things like that can you tell us a bit about why those themes felt really ripe um to explore for you in this one? Mm, I guess I'm just interested in that in general. Uh, but when I, you know, I started writing about the portraits um, and sort of reading about how Cezanne painted and he, if he couldn't feel a part of the painting, a part of the the subject that he was painting, then he felt compelled to leave that part blank. And I felt that, found that really interesting um, because it's like a hidden space. It's a hidden aspect, isn't it? Mm. Um, and actually on the weekend I was at the Canberra Writers Festival and there was a um, panel at the National Gallery of Australia. I was on the panel with the uh, International Art 
um, head of international art there at the Lucine Award, and she was talking about this aspect of, of Cezanne's work and how incredibly important that was that he left spaces, I mean, his landscapes as well, there's, there's actual spaces. And, you know, it was very heartening for me to, to hear her say that she felt my book left the spaces too mm. um, and that she liked that. So um, I think it was, yeah, to, to answer the question, there, there's something in the art itself that, um, you know, indicated this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think listening to you speak then reminded me of sort of, I suppose, the central quote that the book opens with and I think it, you know, forms a an undercurrent or a theme or a comment throughout it and it's a, it's a quote from Gaston Bachelard and that says, um, shade two can be inhabited. Um, can you tell us about your discovery of that text and its effect on, on your book? Yeah, I had read it years ago and I just saw it. I mean, this is one of the little magical moments, isn't it? I was halfway through probably before I just noticed that on my bookcase. And, um, you know, I'm just thank thankful I didn't get rid of that one, you know, in that stupid culling I did, the Mari Kondo culling that I succumbed to once, um, you know, that I regret. But anyway, that was still there and I opened it and I had underlined that line mm. years and, ago. And I thought, oh, this actually, you know, this can actually be a part of the, you know, I, I could see the, re I could feel the resonance, let's put it that way. And and so the book, I think both these characters are looking at their past and wanting to in, inhabit, you know, they're working out ways to inhabit this painful space, you know, this hidden place, space that's also quite painful and so I wanted them to be able to, in a way, remake that space. Um, and I think they both do in, in, in ways. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating um, that, you know, that was a line that resonated with you years ago and then to return to it and occupy it in a totally, in a totally different way or in a new light. Um, mm. Hortense was painted... 29 times is that is that correct mm. can you mm. can you tell us about your sort of um your exploration of of his work and of her identity in relation to his work like what you you know yeah well there's there's not all that much known about her life because mm. you know as has is often the case um the biographies of famous men um, and as is being discussed a lot at the moment, you yes. know, the biographies of famous men concentrate on the men and, you know, the work, the, 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 the women are sort of more or less invisible perhaps. Um, you know, Hortense was a working-class woman and she wasn't liked by his family because of that um, and not really accepted um, or for a long time they didn't even know of her existence because Cezanne didn't want to lose his uh, allowance from his banker father. So, uh, sorry, now I'm losing what that what on earth you actually asked me. Sorry. No, no, I, you're doing a fantastic job. You're telling us about Hortense and what you were able to glean from her yeah, by looking yeah, at his so life. Yeah, so that's right. So so just particular details, but there's, there's these stories about her 
that she refused to come to her husband's deathbed because she had a pressing engagement with her dressmaker Mm. um, and that she was a drunk and that she burned her mother-in-law's possessions after her mother-in-law died. So I realised that, okay, I can either try to refute some of this Mm. and, and find her that way or I can accept it all Mm. and kind of inhabit it in a way and, and perhaps shine a light in, in onto these stories that are that are kind of stereotypes in a way. So I enjoyed doing that, I must say. Oh, I absolutely enjoyed reading it. And and something that I really enjoyed in the book, there's this there's a wonderful moment, it's a sort of happenstance moment, I suppose, as um, you know, anxiety is sort of increasing in Paris and around the world about COVID and about what's happening and your writer character manages to escape to Shakespeare and company for a short period and has this really gorgeous and quite fleeting exchange with the bookseller there. Um, It's just before Olivia Lang's beautiful um, collection of essays about art and feminism called something in in an emergency. Funny weather, <laughs> art in an emergency. Thank you. I forgot the first half of that sentence in a little brain snap I just had. Um, but mm. the bookseller gives this writer an advance copy, her own copy, and sends her off into the world with it. And if you've read that book, it provides this other delightful little layer of sort of um, texture and context about about the way, you know, women specifically bring other women into the light. And I, I wanted to ask you about that, about contemporary writers, about contemporary art criticism and the role that's played in the writing of The Sitter as well. Mm. Well, there's a particular chapter in that book about, um, gosh, Georgia O'Keeffe, that's her. Mm. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I knew I wanted to use that I knew I wanted to to um, use that scene in that chapter um, in the book, but there was. I realised that the book was published in April, and where the you know the writers there in March, so that's why it had to be <laughs> the advanced copy. Um, that bit particularly warmed my heart. It's it's funny to hear <laughs> that that was a little plot trick. Mm. Um. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm always sort of absorbing, you know, art criticism and, and, and I mean, I love Olivia Lang and, yeah, I just sort of was looking out, I, I suppose, and that was something that, that I knew would, would um, well, I hoped would would work and, and it did. So, um, I mean, that's all I can say to that really. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Literati Glitterati, a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday to 1pm. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.